Our natural world inspires and shapes us, so it's critical that we work to protect it. I'm Alex Honnold, professional rock climber and founder of the Honnold Foundation, and this is Planet Visionaries. As a climber, I've been fortunate enough to see both the beauty and fragility of our planet. That's why I'm proud to be joining Rolex and the Washington Post Creative Group to bring you stories of inspiring people who are helping to solve some of the most important conservation issues that we face today. For nearly a century, Rolex has backed explorers and innovators who strive to understand and protect our natural world. In this series, we'll dive into the stories of those people who are at the forefront of the quest to keep the planet perpetual. On this episode, I talked to Andrew McGonigal, a physicist who's figured out how to forecast volcanic eruptions and is helping protect communities around the world who are vulnerable to volcanic activity. In 2008, Andrew became a Rolex Awards for Enterprise Laureate, and he has since developed groundbreaking technology to monitor active volcanoes around the globe. Andrew, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Alex, it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the show. Cool. All right, let's dive into it, Andrew. You know, tell me about volcanology. Like, what does that mean? Studying volcanism is really important because it helps us better understand how volcanoes behave. And the the more we understand that, the more um, capacity we're going to have in terms of being able to work out what might happen next in order to try and safeguard the populations that are that are living in the vicinity of these active volcanoes. And which part drew you to it originally? I grew up in, in Edinburgh in Scotland, and Edinburgh is a city which is built on seven hills, and they're all volcanoes. And so I spent my childhood running around these volcanoes, and then it's amazing that as human beings, we can understand. I mean, we're, we're so small in comparison to these mountains. We're just, we're like ants clambering around the, the side of these things. I just still have this absolute awe that through our ingenuity, we can actually devise technical solutions that we can use to study these things. So I just have this really fundamental sense of complete awesomeness that we're, we're actually able to do this, to understand the universe, and in particular these, these mountains, whether they release fire or not. So can you tell us what studying volcanic activity tells us about the state of the world? Volcanoes are studied in lots of different ways. It's a little bit like a, a doctor would use multiple different diagnostic techniques to try and understand what's wrong or right with a patient. In volcanology, we, we do the same thing. And then specifically in terms of what we do, we look at the gases that are released from volcanoes. So we essentially, we measure the volcano breathing. And for example, that could be highly relevant because if the volcano's held its breath for a long time, well, you know, maybe next time there's, there's going to be a big explosion. What does it mean for a volcano to be breathing? Volcanoes are, are really holes in the ground that stuff comes out of from Earth's interior. And what that means is that volcanoes release magmas. They come out as lavas or through exploded materials and gas as well. So, so this gas is constantly being released from, from these magmas. And you've kind of got two options. The gases are sometimes able to flow out and there's not really an explosion which takes place. That's kind of what we want to happen. Um, but sometimes, uh, imagine sh- a champagne bottle after they shake the bottle up and then the cork goes off and everything comes out and it, and it all explodes. That's the scenario that we don't really want from the point of view of, of hazards. So by breathing, what I mean is the process whereby the gases are released, which is all important in terms of determining 
what happens. Just think of all those bubbles floating up to the top of the pint of beer. That's what we want to see versus a champagne bottle, in which case you get the big explosion. That's a nice way to think about your research. Andrew and his team developed a groundbreaking way to monitor volcanoes, but the success didn't happen overnight. Let's cover some of the the importance of volcanoes. Like, why is the research important? Who's actually at risk from volcanic eruptions? Like, talk me through some of the basics of volcanoes around the world. Around 10% of Earth's population live within the firing range of an active volcano. Many of these volcanoes are situated really close to major urban epicenters. So, for example, the Naples region in Italy, there's a couple of volcanoes that are very, very important there. You know, huge parts of Southeast Asia and Indonesia, there's, there's just loads and loads of volcanoes there. So there is this, on one hand, really pressing, interesting scientific need to understand volcanoes. But on the other hand, there's this humanitarian issue in terms of the risk that they pose. And then also the issue that many volcanoes are in locations where there isn't much money in terms of monitoring. So there's a lot of work to be done in order to try and enhance monitoring networks. And so when you started working in volcanology, where did the field stand? Like, how were people monitoring eruptions at that time? There was a lot of work done in seismology, which was and arguably still is the mainstay in terms of volcano observations. There was satellite observations, thermal observations as well, just looking at how the ground gets warmer as as magmas move underground. One of the main things which has really changed is the gas monitoring. So uh, the capacity now in gas monitoring is, is significantly improved. And this isn't just me and my techniques. There's been, there's an, been a number of different people working on this in, in, on the basis of multiple different technologies. Can you explain your drone technology in a way that I might be able to understand? <laughs> like, how do you guys measure volcanic gases? We started working with drones ages ago, back in 2007. So before drones really became commonplace, and I guess in many ways we kind of helped kickstart the application of drones within volcanology, which has now been applied quite widely across the international volcano community. The basic premise is going in and and doing these measurements is obviously very dangerous for people, and therefore if you can find ways of doing this remotely, then that's a really good idea. Drones have got this remarkable ability, and the engineering's improved so much over the last decade or so, of being able to remotely port her instrumentation into the mouth of the beast, if you like. You received the Rolex Awards for Enterprise in 2008. What was your reaction to winning the award? I was just so grateful. We were really trying to do something that was ahead of the curve. But, you know, until, until you've had kind of wholesale external recognition... There's a real argument as to, well, how do you know? You know, you might think you're onto something, but actually you're not. So I think that was a real validation. And and so I was just, I was really grateful. And so how did receiving the award end up impacting your work? It enabled us to push things further in terms of the drone tech. And then that's something now, which, as I mentioned before, has been applied really uh, significantly across the volcano community internationally. The other thing that it helped is that we we then moved on to other technologies. So more recently, we've been working on um, effectively adapted sensors that you'd find in a smartphone. And we've developed a camera-based uh, monitoring system on the basis of that that works in the ultraviolet and volcanic gases absorb in the UV. So when you when you look at the volcano with these units, 
you can see effectively the gas coming out of the top, a little bit like thermal cameras can see heat escaping from buildings. It's, it's a little bit like that. And so that's really been the, the focus of our, of our activity over the last five to seven years. So I guess the Rolex Award helped us kind of push one tech a little bit further forward, but then jump onto the next thing. And so who are some of the Rolex Awards for Enterprise Laureates that you've worked with or that you admire? I've worked a lot with someone called Forrest Mims, who's American. He's, he's based in Texas. And his big thing was he developed a relatively low-cost sensor for measuring ozone in the atmosphere around the time of the, I guess, the crisis in, in the late 80s and the early 90s in terms of the ozone hole. So his, his work's kind of similar to mine. He's looking at relatively inexpensive ways of solving challenging science measurement problems that might be useful for people in that obviously the ozone thing is potentially very serious in terms of skin cancers and, and all the rest of it. Probably a lot of the challenges in doing research on volcanoes are similar to the challenges of, of climate expeditions because you are in many of the same locations where you are just far from support. You know, it's a long walk into a sort of remote environment. There's, there's no easy way to fix something. Yeah, I mean, it is a hard place to do science. That's right. But then I guess that's the challenge, right? That's why this is the kind of undiscovered or the unachieved objective. I feel like in science, people don't talk about failure. Well, and, and certainly in climbing as well, kind of in life, people don't talk about failure as much as it we maybe should, you know, because obviously it is a big part of, of everything that we do. I mean, it, you know, if you're pushing the limits, you are constantly running into dead ends and, and experiencing setbacks. It's like, so, so what do those look like in, in volcanology? I think that's absolutely right. I think when you're when you're trying to do things that no one's done before, unless it's just a really kind of obvious, uninteresting thing, it will be difficult. But yeah, things things fail all the time. Technologically, almost always you get there in the end, but you might need to be very, very patient and things might last a long period of time. Andrew's team is working around the globe to monitor volcanoes that teach us about our planet, our climate, and our solar system. So which volcanoes are you working on right now? We're doing projects all over the world, really. I guess there's two specific foci that we're interested in. The first one is Stromboli in, in Italy. Uh, Stromboli is nicknamed the lighthouse of the Mediterranean because it explodes every 10 minutes or so metronomically. And it's done so, as far as we know, for thousands of years, based on reports from antiquity, from the Greeks, for for example. Did you say it explodes every 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah. So it's like a fireworks show. Now, the explosions aren't enormous. Like, this isn't, you know, blowing half of Italy up or anything like that. But you get explosions that would release material maybe 100 meters into the air. And if you could see it at nighttime, it's literally like a fireworks show. It's absolutely unbelievable. And we also, we've recently been doing quite a bit of work in, in Chile, in, in South America, on some of the volcanoes on the Antiplano. And with our UV technology, we're, we're doing installation of instruments there to try and better understand how, the, how those volcanoes work. And so how do you plan on spreading awareness about using technology to measure and predict volcanic activity? We've got strong links to a number of volcano observatories across the planet. Um, a number of them are, are using our, our technology already. We're in conversations with some others who are interested in taking it on board. Through those links and those relationships, we're spinning the tech out into, into different places. What does volcanic activity tell us about changes in overall climate or you know, health of the planet? Or, or does it? I mean, do 
volcanic activities have anything to do with the broader state of Earth? Volcanoes are absolutely intimately tied to how the planet works. And in fact, there's volcanoes all across the solar system on Mars and Io and, and, and elsewhere, and which is really cool. <laughs> yeah. Olympus Mons on Mars is like 27,000 meters high, I think. I mean, it's just, I think it's three times higher than Everest. It's, it's wild. I mean, volcanoes are just a fundamental part of how planets work. They're a way of releasing uh, energy from the inside of the planet to the cool of space. That's interesting. I mean, I would have just assumed that volcanology existed totally outside of the scope of, of climate research and, you know, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and all those kinds of things. But what you're saying is that there is some possibility of a connection there. I mean, I suppose it makes sense that all things on Earth have some kind of interconnectedness, but that's not an intuitive one to me. I'm surprised by that. No, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And another, another thing, the last really big eruption was Pinatubo in the, in the Philippines in 1991. When that kicked off, it released sulfuric acid droplets into the stratosphere, the upper atmosphere, which reflected sunlight back to space, which actually cooled Earth down. And so that, that actually cooled Earth by about the same that Earth had heated up by since the Industrial Revolution because of climate change, because of the greenhouse effect. So when Pinatubo went off, we pretty much went back to pre-industrial temperatures in terms of a drop. Now, that didn't last very, very long. That lasted a couple of years. So there is, there is a really, really complex uh, interplay between all of these different facets of the Earth system. Andrew's goal is to increase what we know about volcanoes and put that knowledge into the hands of those who are most impacted by them. So a part of your mission is to create tools that are accessible to other scientists all over the planet. And why is it important to make those tools accessible? One of the challenges with the hardware for monitoring is that this is, this is scientific-grade hardware, and therefore it's potentially quite expensive, potentially prohibitively so for the end-user community, particularly in parts of the world which are relatively poor and yet still suffer from significant volcanic risk. So one of the things we've tried to do is to develop relatively low-cost solutions that would be accessible from a price point point of view to those end users. Another challenge that we've got is trying to make sure that's engineered in a way that in as much as possible a non-expert could use it. So in other words, the stakeholders are going to be geologists. They're not necessarily going to be tech people or they're not necessarily going to be physicists or engineers. So that's one of the things we try and work on is making sure that the tech is accessible from a usability standpoint as well. So can you describe those low-cost solutions? I mean, what have you guys worked on to make that technology cheaper? What we've done in terms of our hardware development is we found a way of taking these things apart, scrubbing off some of the layers from the sensor to enable the sensor to see ultraviolet light. Normally it couldn't do that because these sensors are built for, for visible imaging so that we can get the you know, visible images that we need in terms of filming and, st and stills photography. Uh, so that, that's the basis of our tech. And so we, we've built up camera systems on the basis of those that see ultraviolet light. And then in terms of our engineering and packaging them up, we would package them into a little box, which you can put on a tripod and then you can use it for the imaging. And you're saying that it's roughly the same capabilities as, as the camera that you'd have in a smartphone. You know, what you imagine is like a nice camera. 
but it's actually this tiny, tiny chip. I mean, it looks like a postage stamp, I suppose. That's exactly the right size, Alex. That's right. And so it's, it's a very good quality sensor. The advantage of using it in that format is we can crack that apart. And we went through the trial and error of destroying hundreds of these before we worked out the right, the right way of doing this. Well, th- thanks for that. I mean, I, I feel like that was a, a great demonstration of how your technology has changed over time and, and what you guys are working on. So how would you describe the next generation of researchers? I guess what I'm really fascinated by is the next generation with this ability to be able to go out and make their own instruments and then, and then apply them. And what I see happening is, is a real potential democratization of science, whereby price point is not necessarily such a barrier in terms of being able to take measurements. I guess another thing I'm really passionate about is, you know, why is the research all done by professional scientists? Why is it done by grads? What about high school students? They could build this stuff. They could be doing all of these things. So I'm interested to see where where all of that goes. So what advice would you give to the average person about how they can help keep our planet perpetual? As a person, there's you, there's the tool that you've got in your hand. What is it that you can do? And then there's the backdrop. What area are are you fundamentally interested in? So I guess for me, there's me as a person with my disposition there's the tool, which is kind of volcano monitoring technology or optical technology. Then there's the backdrop, which is volcanoes, but you know it, it could be anything really. I think you got to find a way of putting those three things together in a way that makes sense for you as a person and in a way that, that helps the planet. And I think often we end up with an imbalance because something gets in the way. We just end up maybe all we're interested in is money and so that's all we pursue and then we forget about who we really are as people and then maybe even what we're what we're really good at so i think trying to find a way of of tying all of those three things together i I mean i think for me one thing i always remember is that life on earth is incredibly fragile and working on volcanoes free climbing mountains is a clear reminder of that i suppose for want of a better way of putting it what, what I remember as well is that our, our life is, is sustainable in this, you know, this tiny sector in the solar system. You know, life as we know it is kind of only really possible on, on Earth. And so I think it's really important that we see ourselves in our proper context with humility as being small. And yet at the same time, we see ourselves in our proper context as, as being powerful and being agents of change. We're small ants, but we can climb big mountains. You know, we can do it with application and, and with, with goodwill and, and with effort and with some serious training. But it's not going to be easy, but it's worth doing. I love that. We're small ants, but we can climb big mountains. That, that sums up my whole <laughs> life. I'm like, indeed, indeed. That was renowned volcanologist Andrew McGonagall. I'm Alex Honnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. To learn more about Andrew's work and how you can help make the planet perpetual, check out volcanotech.org. Be sure to catch the next episode when I'm joined by Peruvian conservationist Kirsten Forsberg, who's made it her mission to save giant manta rays. You can learn about the next generation of Rolex Awards for Enterprise Laureates at rolex.org. Thanks for listening.